as they stand before Jesus. And the question you're meant to ask yourself, I'm meant to ask myself, and it's been a bit of a disturbing week, I have to say. Am I, am I a disciple? Am I the type of disciple that Jesus seeks? So let's get into this. Uh, on the surface, I think these seem like three quite different stories, but I, I'm convinced they fit together beautifully. Uh, Jesus is with his disciples and the first uh, six verses hang together with two levels of amazement. Two levels of amazement. Two people or two groups of people are amazed. See in verse 2, when you heard Jesus teach, you were amazed. When you heard Jesus teach, you were amazed. How can someone like that be saying things like this? How can someone like How's he described? Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Notice that there's a link between Jesus' words and actions. You never separate the two with Jesus. His words testify to his actions. His actions testify to his words. It's who he is. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this? Notice it doesn't say, you know, if you're talking about carpenters, who was the carpenter, Mary or Joseph? Joseph was the carpenter. It doesn't say, isn't this Joseph's son? No, no, it's a little bit of a dig at the fact that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Jesus was born inappropriately. Before his mum was married, she was pregnant. It's why that, that word at the end of verse 3, they took offence at him. It's got the idea of scandal. Who does he think he is? Only in his hometown, Jesus says, amongst people who really, really know him, is a prophet without honour. Now, a prophet is a person who, in the biblical meaning of the word, that's with a PH, not an F, a prophet is a person who speaks the very words of God to people. In the Old Testament, they'd finish their saying with, Thus says the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. The idea is that the prophet himself is no one. And in fact, if you go through the Old Testament, the prophets were a kooky bunch of guys. Moses, odd. Isaiah, bit weird. Jeremiah, particularly kooky. The prophets themselves were nobody, which just goes to heighten the fact that it was their message which carried weight because it was the very words of God. And so when Jesus teaches and the people are amazed, there's also this kind of scandal. How can this one, the carpenter's son, the bastard, the one that we know, the one that we've seen grow up, how can Davy be a children's minister at Ashfield? We know him when he's... I've known him since he's in year four. You know, the, the more you know someone, the harder it is to see them in a position of responsibility. But when you see people as they are, as grown-ups, as who God has made them to be, you are forced to reconsider. This is what God has planned for this man. Now have a look at verse 5. Jesus couldn't do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Two levels of amazement. The people are amazed at Jesus' teaching and Jesus is amazed 
at their lack of faith. Notice, first of all, Jesus can still heal people. If I came into church tonight, asked around who needed healing, and I laid my hands on you and you were healed, I would be quite impressed. Don't know about you. I I think that would be pretty impressive. That would be miraculous, I think. It's not that Jesus somehow has no power, but there's something about the people to whom Jesus is speaking and the way they respond to him that the same things don't happen here that we've already seen happen. Paralysed man, dropped through, dug through the roof at Jesus' feet. Your faith has healed you. Jesus says to the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Jairus, whose daughter is on her deathbed, begs Jesus, just please. Miracles, which we've already seen in Mark, miraculous things, I think what Mark is saying is that the miracles we've seen are a response to people coming desperate to Jesus. When you come to Jesus and you realise there's no other hope, miraculous things happen. The dead come to life. The sick are healed. Jesus is still powerful no matter what your response to him is. Jesus is still the Christ, the Son of God. Mark is kind of stirring you and saying, do you have any faith in Jesus? Do you have any faith? Jesus goes around, not just in his hometown, but in a circle, teaching from village to village. And notice the in and out here, calling the twelve to him, bring it in. He sent them out, two by two, that was the Jewish way, and gave them authority over evil spirits. Notice what Jesus does with his disciples. This little section, by the way, is meant to be really encouraging to you because the disciples are kind of clueless at this point. Even up to Mark 8, when Peter goes, yes, you're the Christ, the disciples have really not got it. They've really not got who Jesus is, what his mission is, how to kind of succinctly teach the message that the kingdom is near. Jesus gives them and tells them everything. It's his authority. This is meant to be heartening for people like us who feel a bit like when we're told to represent Jesus, we feel a bit like... They're empty vessels that Jesus gives authority and a message. These are his instructions. And I reckon, as I've been thinking about this, you can kind of hear the disciples saying the Lord's Prayer as they go out. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, that's the message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, Mark 1, 14, 15. Give us today our daily bread which is what you need to pray when you have nothing except a staff that's not like a secretary and an office manager. It's a stick. (laughs) No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra tunic. Jesus is saying that when the disciples go out, 
give us today our daily bread. You don't take what you're given and then kind of go, oh, thanks for putting me up. It's a really nice bed and thanks for your home brand toast. But the other disciples up the road, they've got that kind of soy and linseed. So I'm going to, thanks for having me. I'm going to, no, no, the idea is that as a disciple, you're dependent on God to provide day by day. Just like Israel in the wilderness with the birds and the bread from the sky. Dependent on God as you follow him. And verse 11, if any place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. It's a very Sydney in summer kind of picture. I'm going to bash the dust off my thongs. I want nothing to do with you and your dirty place. It's a great picture of how the messenger represents the message. These people want nothing to do with Jesus. Walk away. What's the message that they were given? It's there in verse 12, in case you missed it before. They went out and preached that people should repent. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Repent means to turn back to God. That the God who made you loves you despite you're turning your back on him. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's you, it's me at our hearts. That there's a God who wants what is best for us. There's a God who loves us and has a good plan for us. A life that's devoted to others in service and we just keep seeking our own agenda and our own good. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come to do what we could not. To take the punishment we deserve It's one of the threads that flows through Mark from the beginning to the end that Jesus will die on the cross to take away sin. And so from the very beginning, Mark weaves in this message of repent. The kingdom of God is near. And their words and their actions as they speak this message of turning back to God match. They drove out many demons and anointed sick people with oil and healed them to show that this is a message which brings life and freedom and release from all that leads to death. It's not that the disciples are eminently capable. They have a message which is from Jesus. They have a commission from Jesus. And if you are a disciple, you're the same. The way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 is that we are kind of styrene cups He calls it jars of clay, which sounds noble and stuff, but it just means takeaway cups. We're nothing. The thing that's inside is everything. You're meant to be unimpressive so that people, when you say there's this great message about a God who loves you and will forgive you no matter what you've done and who you are, there's meant to be a disconnect between you and your message on one level. They're meant to kind of go, you, really? We know you. How can this be a message that you're bringing to us? Because the authority doesn't lie with you. Just pause for a moment. It's about to be Christmas and I suspect that for many of you, you're going to see your families or at least a bunch of people that you only see once a year. I just want to not taunt you but encourage you to think over the next few days, what are those first 60 seconds of conversation going to be like for you? If you're a Christian and you've been praying for your family to be converted, you want to be salt and light with your family. I'm not saying bash your family over the head with Jesus at the first opportunity, 
But what's it going to look like for you to speak of Jesus, not just of the year that you've had? You get an opportunity as a disciple of Jesus, if that's you, uh, as you get together with your family this Christmas, just to say what you believe about this man and how it affects you, what the Lord has done for you this year. Back on track. Empty vessels, the disciples go out, anoint people with oil as a message that their mess as a sign that their message is a life giving one. Uh, it's pretty obvious when that happens. The disciples go out in groups and word gets about. That's what King Herod hears. Verse fourteen. King Herod heard about this, aka the disciples of healing people and preaching the message of repentance. And Jesus' name gets well known. Everyone's talking about Jesus. He's trending. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. It sounds like a ludicrous thing to say, right? Because we know that people don't come back from the dead. Well, except one. Others say he's Elijah. In case you're not au fait with Elijah, Elijah's a kind of big deal prophet from the Old Testament. Massive powerhouse prophet. Could showed off God's strength very clearly and didn't die. He walked with God. He kind of just up to heaven, Elijah. So when someone awesome comes along, you think, oh, is it Elijah? Come back to her. And others claim, like you expect, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. But when Herod, who's the kind of local, not quite a king, he's the ruler that Rome have installed, when Herod hears this, he says, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. I think he thinks it because it's the same message that John preached, that Jesus preached. When John the Baptist preached, he preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Jesus is preaching. That's what the disciples are preaching. Turn back to God. Same message, you assume it's the same messenger. Now, from verse 17 on, you get a lot of information about Herod, Herodias, Herod's brother Philip, whose name was actually Herod Philip, which just makes the story even weirder, and a little girl. There's lots of detail here. On one hand, it's totally beside the point. The point is there in verses 14, 15 and 16. The question is, who's Jesus? Uh, The big point of this is that John the Baptist is not Jesus and that Jesus isn't a reincarnation of John the Baptist. But I think there are a few things that Mark wants us to notice whenever the narrative in Mark slows down like this and you get lots of detail. Mark's trying to point out a couple of things to you. I want to show you two things about this little story about Herod. Herod's held up, Herod and John the Baptist are held up here so that we can just think about them for a minute. John the Baptist is both a prototype of Jesus, a prototype of Jesus, and a sign to, us, sign to us of what it's like to be a disciple. He's both of those things. A prototype of Jesus and someone who shows us what it's like to be a disciple. Listen to what happened to Herod, verse 17. Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. Sounds like a bad thing, but I think it's actually done for John the Baptist's protection. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, Okay. Family tree time, ask Laura about it later. She loves drawing family trees. Herod, Herod's brother Philip. Herod Philip. 
Herod, Herod Philip's wife, now married to her brother-in-law. Obviously dodgy. Obviously dodgy. Against the Old Testament commands, against incest, against marrying, it's just bad. And notice what John had said, verse 18, don't do it. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias, that's the wife, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because, well, Herod kind of likes John the Baptist. He's a bit of an enigma. It's a long time in second gear. John the Baptist is kind of an enigma. He's against Herod. He says, stop, you know what you're doing is wrong, but in a kind of Greek love of philosophy and enjoying the interaction with someone who disagrees with you, Herod kind of keeps him around. Bound, but around. Because Herod feared John and protected him, verse 20, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. John the Baptist is kind of the start of a long tradition of followers of Jesus who stand up for what is right, even against powerful political authority. Christian history is littered with wonderful examples of people who have been cast in prison because their faith in Christ has led them to stand up for what is right against slavery, against the poor treatment of children. John the Baptist shows us what it's like to be a disciple. It's costly sometimes to stand up for what is right. But Herod likes to listen to Jesus. Now, the opportunity comes in verse 21 for Herodias to do what she'd planned to do, to kill John the Baptist. And it's this kind of seedy little story. Herod's there, high officials, military commanders, leading men of Galilee, the daughter of Herodias... So Herod's stepdaughter comes in and dances and pleased Herod and his dinner guests. I'm guessing it's not just a little jazz ballet routine. The king said to the girl in response to this dance, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. He's he's impressing his friends. Promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom, even though I'm not really a king and I don't have the authority to give it to you. She went out and said to her mother, and this is a little indication, she doesn't know what to do. She has to go out and ask her mum. And it's, it's pathetic. What should I ask for? Fairy wings? A nice tiara? The head of John the Baptist, she answers. And at once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It's macabre from a little girl. The king was greatly distressed and quite rightly so, verse 26. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he didn't want to refuse her. Just look at that verse again, verse 26. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. And so he sends the executioner straight away and John the Baptist's head arrives. He presents it to the girl and she gives it to her mother. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
It's exactly the same as Mark chapter 15, verse 15, when Jesus is before Pilate, wanting to please the crowd. Jesus hand, Pilate hands over Jesus and he's killed and his disciples lay him in a tomb. Mark slows us down to show that John the Baptist's time has come. He's a light that burned for a while, but his, his time is over and he's showing us, yes, what it's like to be a disciple, but he's also showing us that he's a forerunner of Jesus, that Jesus' purpose as the one who preaches the kingdom is to bring it about by his death. What does it mean for you to stand in front of Jesus? Who are you as you stand before Jesus? Are you a mocker? Are you amazed but keeping him at a distance? Are you puzzled? Are you scandalised that someone like this could say these things? Or are you one of those disciples who just realises you're not up to the task but you're willing? This is who Jesus wants, people who are willing to just do what he says, to trust him. That's what faith is. To do what Jesus says, what he commands, even though it seems ridiculous and it looks costly. As I've been reading uh, this little passage, I've been forced to ask myself, what is there in my life that I would not give up in order to follow Jesus? These disciples... They leave everything and follow Jesus. Uh, when I uh, became a Christian in year 11, one of the guys in my year said, you've got to think of your life as a, kind of like a shopping trolley full of stuff, all the things that make you who you are. Uh, and when you, when you hand control of your life over to Jesus, he gets to pick what's in there. And that, nothing wrong with liking sport, pretty much all I liked in year 11, uh, and teasing people. Oh, no, actually... Now that you're a Christian, that doesn't belong in your trolley. So if you're going to be a disciple, you've got to work out how to honour God with your tongue. And Jesus gets to decide what goes back in your life. Now tonight we're sending people out, and I hate it. It's the worst part about this church, that we're committed to the kingdom of God. Mark wants us to ask, what is it that we will not give up to pursue Jesus? What is there that I'm holding on to that I'm saying, no, Jesus, you can't have that. I'll decide how to use that. I'll decide whether I want that. I know you don't want me to, but I'm just going to do it. That's Herod. That's the mockers. It's not John the Baptist. And it's not Jesus' model. See, Jesus gives up everything for his people. Uh, if I think, if you think that if I give this up, God won't look after me, you've forgotten that Jesus does have the power to raise people from the dead. 
Jesus does have the power to feed disciples when all they bring is a stick. Jesus does have the power to give life to the full, even though it looks ridiculous on the surface. This passage is kind of, or well, this passage should challenge us to work out whether we really are following Jesus. But I don't want to leave you with a guilt trip and saying, oh, I haven't given this bit of my life over to Jesus. Maybe I'm not a real disciple. Because at every point we ask ourselves whether we are doing what we should as disciples. We remember that our discipleship is one of emptiness before Jesus, of willingness to trust his perfect sacrifice, his provision, his message. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though you know us and you know our hearts, you love us. We thank you that you've demonstrated your great love for us, that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. Father, we recognise that we don't have it in ourselves and in our own power uh, to follow Jesus like we should, and so we ask, Lord, please help us. Uh, Help us to be proper disciples uh, who trust you in every way, who are willing to give up Uh, everything of our own to pursue Jesus' kingly agenda. And give us wisdom, Lord, this week as we speak with people uh, to honour you with our lips and with our lives. And we thank you for the examples of those who've gone before us and those who are going. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to grow your kingdom through your servants. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.